We're talking about songs this morning. So how many of you have ever created a playlist? Maybe using Spotify or iTunes? Either a nodding head or, okay. If you don't know what a playlist is, have you ever made a mixtape? <laughs> <laughs> a blast from the past. In doing that, you can create a collection of songs that mean something to you. The songs either capture your emotion for something or someone, and they help you remember a special moment in your life, or maybe they just put you in a good mood. Songs can be quite meaningful to us. They're powerful. I confess just the first line of our national anthem during the medal ceremony of the Olympics is enough to make me choke up depending on the athlete. On a broader scale, some of you uh, may have observed how the musical Hamilton has swept our nation and has become quite popular. Now this may come as a surprise to you, but God loves music. Yes, the Bible contains a lot of history. Yes, it contains a lot of teaching on how we're to live. But it also contains an entire book of just songs. It's called the Psalms, P-S-A-L-M-S, derived from the Greek meaning songs. The book is a collection of 150 songs. Psalms was the soundtrack played over and over again by God's people. And we're going to spend the next few weeks in our series looking at some of these songs from the heart. I wish we knew how they sounded, but unfortunately, given that it's been a few thousand years since their composition, we don't really know how to interpret the musical instructions included in each book. If you look right under the psalm title or number, many of them have a brief description of the songwriter and then how it is to be sung. So for example, that brief description or superscript in Psalm 32 says, of David, a mascal. And the people at the time would know how to play that. Psalm 22 reads, to the tune of the doe of the morning. David, Devin, maybe you can write a song with that tune sometime for us. So as song lyrics, many of the great hymns of our faith, and some we've even sung today, um, some praise songs that we often sing are rooted in the Psalms. So such lyrics really need to be thought of as poetry when we read them. The Psalms use numerous devices to, literary devices to communicate their point. Metaphor, alliteration, parallelism, where there's two lines that are saying the same thing, either to reinforce uh, the same point or to contrast it. All of these are utilized. Now, add to that the fact that the lyrics were written originally in Hebrew. So when we read them in our English translation, we're often missing some of the word plays or the alliteration or the rhyme that would have been very apparent to the first listeners it would have been very easy for them to commit these songs to memory. And indeed, that's exactly what God's people did. Many of the songs are written out of personal experience and are recorded for us, a behind the music, if you will. An example of this is Psalm 51, a, a plea for forgiveness, where we're told, where we're told Nathan's confrontation of David's sin inspires this song. It's always nice having the backstory of the song, but many songs don't give us the juicy details and are more general, like the psalm we're going to look at today. But here's what's perhaps most important. The psalms are not just songs. They are prayers. 
they can be confusing to read in our Bibles because sometimes you find somebody crying out for vengeance or complaining that God is ignoring them. And we think, that's not who God is, is it? No, it's not. But it can be our experience of God at times. And this is what makes the psalm so unique and so cherished. Fourth century theologian Athanasius was the first one to state this so clearly. Most of scripture speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. In other words, they are a collection of our prayers to God. That's what makes us love them so much because we can identify with them. They are, as John Calvin called them, an anatomy of the human soul. Every emotion of the human condition gets airtime on this record, from the highest of mountaintop experiences to the deepest valleys. But they weren't just written to showcase a variety of honest spiritual responses to God on an individual level. They were written, collected, and arranged to serve as a summary of Israel's history over hundreds of years. And not just chronicling that history, but celebrating God's faithfulness to them throughout their history. The book of Psalms was the greatest hits of Israel's history. The soundtrack they used in their worship services to praise God, a playlist, if you will, from God to help them pray and worship. Like any playlist, we can shuffle through it to find a song that fits our mood on any given day. Anyone want to give a shout out to God? Psalm 103 or Psalm 145 are your go-tos. Anyone in the depths of despair? I highly recommend Psalm 22 or Psalm 88. We find all different kinds of songs on this soundtrack. Which begs the question, are we meant to read pray, sing, these songs on shuffle play, where we scroll, scroll through and find a song that matches our current feeling? Or is there some value in letting the playlist just play from start to finish, letting the whole story soak in, regardless of your mood at the time? I've thought about that this week, and I don't have a definitive answer yet, but I'll tell you what I do know. For those of you who are here today in the middle of a grave situation, you've just recently lost a loved one, or you're in the middle of a serious health issue, I can't tell you to read a praise psalm. I think a good lament is just what the doctor ordered. There is so much comfort in knowing you can bring all of your emotion, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to God in prayer and letting him meet you there starting where our hearts actually are rather than where we think they should be is the way into prayer. But for the rest of us, just dealing with normal life, both its joys and its stressors, I think there is some value, as Christians throughout the ages have found, in playing through the playlist in order, praying and singing these songs as they pop up, whether they suit our mood or not. I know what I'm about to say will go against everything our therapeutic culture wants to assert, but ultimately, God, not our feelings, is the subject of this playlist. As you know, if you're a regular here, I'm all about feelings. Our feelings are good, 
And they can often provide a way into praying, but they were never intended to be the sole content of our prayers. As Eugene Peterson writes, our feelings are real and they should not be ignored, but they do not always give us reliable information about God. That happens as we pray through these psalms regularly, day after day, week after week. It happens as we stick with the playlist, not skipping songs just because they don't fit the mood on any given occasion. Is it okay to shuffle through from time to time and find a song that speaks to us? Absolutely. But the majority of the time, whether privately in prayer or corporately in worship, we can pray and sing whatever is in front of us. And in so doing, we can be transformed. I think our song today is an example of that. So with the time I have remaining, I want to walk us through Psalm 33. While it could be labeled as a praise song, it's really meant to teach us something. It's praise with a purpose, as we'll see later on. Follow along with me in your Bible, or in the Pew Bible, it's page 802. Let me give you just an overview of the structure. The psalm can be organized in the following way. Verses 1 to 3, the call to worship. We read that a little bit earlier. Verses 4 to 5, the summary of the reason for this praise. And then verses 6 to 19 are a specific elaboration of the summary, why God is praiseworthy. And it concludes in verses 20 to 22 with a response to who this God is on behalf of the people. So let's begin. Verses 1 to 3. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. The songwriter exhausts about every way of saying it. Give praise to God. Use whatever instruments you have at your disposal. And the righteous here are not people who act really perfect. They're people who've decided to follow God. Apparently, this is not a gathering for reserved Scandinavians. <laughs> They're shouting for joy. Actually, in the Psalms, we're given lots of different ways to worship God from being still to loud shouts resembling a Vikings game. The point isn't the musical sound or quality necessarily. It's the fervor underlying the worship, whether expressed inwardly or outwardly. And why do we do this? Because we happen to be feeling particularly affirming and effusive today? No, because it is fitting, verse one says. He's worthy of praise, whether we feel like it or not. Verses 4 and 5 summarize what the next 14 verses are going to elaborate on, the reason for God to be praised. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Think of this as the chorus of the song. And each verse after this is going to draw out a different nuance, but all are going to repeat, God is trustworthy. He will not change even though our circumstances may. And then, verses 6 to 19 give us three specific reasons we can praise God. First, God is over creation, over heaven and earth, verses 6 to 9 tell us. 
By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. These verses echo Genesis 1 where God's voice alone calls into existence every aspect of this universe. The songwriter incorporates all the known world at the time, the starry host, the waters, the earth. That about covers it. Scholars have noted the 22 verses of the psalm is intentional. Since there are 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, this psalm is meant to be a comprehensive description, an A to Z guide of how God is great. He's great because he's over all these arenas. And rather than stating God is over the water, we're given an image that as the message translates, verse 7, he scooped sea into his jug, put ocean in his keg. However unruly and unpredictable water seems to us, it's just a drop in the bucket for God. That is why all people should fear or revere him, verses 8 and 9 say, Reverence is the wise response of submission and devotion to this God who is over all. Second, God is over history, over nations and people. Verse 10 to 12, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart throughout all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose as his inheritance. The plans and purposes of human beings and leaders become, as they're acted out, our history. These verses are not intended to minimize the importance of human activity, leadership, or power. But they are contrasting the fleeting and ineffective plans of leaders with the plans of God, which stand for all generations. No matter how much influence a leader may have, God gets final veto power. Remember Jesus' words to Pilate when he was on trial in John 19? Pilate prodded, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or crucify you? And Jesus replied, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. God is over creation. He is over history. And third, God is over humanity, over all human beings. God isn't so far above us that he isn't aware of what's going on in the human heart. Verses 13 to 15, from heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything that they do. God sees. God knows. In fact, he sees even more clearly than we do why we behave the way we do. Like the all-seeing eye of Mordor in The Lord of the Rings, no one can escape him. And while there's certainly some accountability and warning in this verse, it's really also meant as a comfort. The eyes of the Lord in the Psalms are often a metaphor for God's loving care 
Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. He is not so busy running the universe that he can't take a call from little old you or little old me. Even if it's the exact same call he's fielded dozens of times. All of this gives us good grounds for trusting in God. In what are some of the most poignant and memorable lyrics, he sings of the futility of self-reliance. Verses 16 to 19. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. In my mind, these lines are like the bridge of the song, you know, the crescendo right before the key change. This is the climax. Given this is who God is, it doesn't make sense to trust in anyone or anything else. Despite the thousands of years from when this song was composed, the human heart hasn't changed. We're still prone to trust in kings and horses. They just go by different names. Savings accounts, healthy bodies, good jobs, talent, wit, winsome personalities, nice families, successful kids or successful careers, good education, cushioned 401ks, connections, Discipline, grit, resourcefulness, looks. Well, we've got horses, friends, and they've gotten us pretty far. All of these are good gifts given by our God for our enjoyment and for use in his kingdom. Notice the verse doesn't say there's no strength in that horse. No, it says for all its great strength, it cannot save. These are gifts, but they must not become God's. They must not become the source of our hope and trust or we will be greatly disappointed. If you can't seem to identify your horse, it's always helpful paying attention to your reactions when something's taken from you, either voluntarily or involuntarily. For example, if we really trust in God and not money, it shouldn't be too hard to give it away. And if we are really free from what others think of us, it's not difficult to refrain from self-promotion in groups or doing good deeds secretly. Likewise, how do we cope when we don't get that promotion or our body becomes quite limited? What's interesting about these verses is that for so many years of Israel's history, she didn't have horses. Most of the time, they were the underdog Outgunned and outmanned. And yet, God came through for them. One of the most famous of these occasions was when God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. God delivered them from slavery slavery through the ten plagues and led them through the desert. Eventually, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, has a change of heart and decides he wants to reclaim his workforce. So he pursues them with horses and chariots. Standing with a huge body of water on one side of them and an Egyptian army charging them on the other, they cry in Exodus 14, Why'd you take us out of Egypt, Moses, if just to die here in this moment? 
But God, through Moses, assures them, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. And the same God who made water, now through Moses, parts the water, making a way when there was no way. And after all the Israelites walk safely through, the water doesn't stay parted so nicely for the Egyptians. And Israel learns a horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Israel learns that God is over all creation, over all history, over all humanity. With that kind of God, what is the response we are to have to him? Verses 20 to 22 give us the the response and maybe all the listeners at this point join in the song. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. The psalm begins in praise and ends in trust. This praise has a purpose. It's to promote trust. The psalmist says it three different ways. Wait in hope, rejoice in him, trust in his name. But really, they're all interrelated. You cannot wait in hope unless you trust. You cannot trust unless you can genuinely praise him above all others. Think about it. There's an inherent relationship between praise and And trust. When you really believe something is awesome, you will put your trust in it. This is in part the rationale behind testimonials and free samples in marketing. I have a friend with a very popular blog and companies are all the time sending her free products as a way of encouraging her to review them and post them on her website or on her blog just to generate wider interest. Her praise of the product tells her readers, put your trust in this. This surpasses all others. Similarly, as one writer put it, the exclusive celebration of this God constitutes a necessary dismissal of every rival claim. If this God really does deserve all praise and is worthy of my trust, then that automatically calls into question the other gods I have been giving praise to and in whom I have been putting my trust. If God is who I'm praising him to be, then I must depend on him alone. And that trust is manifested by waiting in hope. Wait in hope. Do you know how hard that is? In times of stress or when facing a challenge, we often go to two extremes, either anxious activity, frenetically looking to solve the problem in our own strength, or just make a decision to relieve the stressor, or we give up in despair, thinking it'll never work out. But hopeful waiting is the right stance for people trusting in a faithful, loving, all-powerful God. What areas in our lives could use some waiting and hope today? 
Where are we tempted to anxiously resolve things in our own strength or tempted to despair and give up? We wait in hope because he is our help and our shield. Unlike in our language where helper can denote inferiority, it really means deliverer or someone who supplies desperately needed service and shield. This writer's in the thick of it. He's in the fight of his life and God is protecting him, coming to his aid. Still in the midst of trouble, the writer says, our hearts rejoice in him for we trust in his holy name. I want us to have this song or at least some lyrics of it stuck in our heads this week. Even if we don't feel like praising God. Because sometimes we pray these psalms because they fit exactly how we feel. Other times we pray them so that they would fit exactly how we feel. So that the lyrics become our reality. The last few songs in our worship today emphasize God's faithfulness to us always. Mm. Let me encourage you this morning. If you're struggling to believe that today, as we sing, ask God to grow your trust in him, to remind you of who he is. And if you're in a place right now where it's really easy for you to see God's faithfulness belted out when we sing, we need your voice. Some here need you to sing it out, to remember it's true, even if they don't believe it. For as Psalm 33 reveals, praising God can promote trust in him. And as we do this day in and day out through prayer and week in and week out through worship, we will find these final verses will not only be our desire, but by the grace of God, they will be our reality as well. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so thankful to be reminded of this truth that you alone are worthy. You alone are worthy of our trust. There is no other rock but you. Help us to see who you are clearly that we might put our trust in you more fully, waiting in trust of you for our benefit and for your glory.